This podcast is a production of WCWP, LIU Post Public Radio. Check out our lineup of original programs, listen live, or support by visiting WCWP.org. This is Anand Venegala, and I will be your host for the Letter of Liberty podcast, where we welcome guests to discuss literature, liberty, politics, news, and potentially all that is under the sun. Our guest for today is Robert Alter. He is the Professor of Hebrew and Comparative Literature at the University of California, Berkeley, where he has taught since 1967. He has written The Art of Biblical Narrative, The Art of Biblical Poetry, and Pen of Iron, American Prose and the King James Bible. In addition, he has been translating the Hebrew Bible. Some of his collections include The Five Books of Moses, Ancient Israel, Strong as Death is Love, and The Wisdom Books. Today we'll be discussing the David story, his translation of the biblical books of 1st and 2nd Samuel, as well as the first two chapters of 1st Kings. In addition, we will discuss his work on the Hebrew Bible, which he has completed and which will be out in September 2018. So let's welcome Professor Alter to the Letter of Liberty. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. So please give our listeners a basic story outline of 1st and 2nd Samuel, as well as the first two chapters of 1st Kings. Uh, well, um, it, it, Second Samuel, of course, be, begins with the um, uh, rise of uh, the young Samuel uh, to the role of prophet. He is then more or less coerced by, by the people to anoint a uh, a king, uh, much against his. Uh, inclination, and uh, he anoints Saul, uh, and then there are all kinds of problems between him and Saul. Uh, I, I, I won't go into the, the minute details, but uh, at a certain point he becomes estranged from Saul and tells him that, that uh, God will uh, tear the kingship from him, and uh, he goes on to clandestinely anoint David as king while uh, Saul is still ruling. Uh, what follows is a complicated relationship with, uh, between David and Saul. Da- David enters the court, becomes a military hero. Uh, Saul becomes jealous of him because of his terrific popularity and, and has this sense that, in fact, uh, David is maneuvering to replace him. Uh, finally, tries to kill David. David flees to the Badlands for a while, becomes a vassal to a Philistine king. Um, in the end, uh, um, Saul and his sons perish at the hands of the Philistines in a big battle uh, uh, at Mount Gilboa. Um, what follows from that is a civil war between the House of Saul and the House of David, which uh, is uh, resolved when David... There's lots of uh, 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 blood and thunder in this story. Where David's general, Abner, um, comes to sue for peace with, with uh with David and is promptly assassinated by, I'm sorry, Saul's uh, um, 
um, um, uh, uh, general, and he's assassinated by David's general. But uh, eventually, David does consolidate the, the the kingship, so he becomes king over all twelve tribes, uh, and then things start spiraling downward. Uh, I, I think that that um, uh, William Faulkner's brilliant novel, in my uh, mind, the the finest American novel of the 20th century, Absalom, Absalom, gets it right that, that this story turns out to be uh, strangely a story about the fall of the house of David. Um, the fall begins with his um, adulterous uh, uh, sex with, with um, the beautiful Bathsheba. He's then basically cursed by... Um, and Nathan the prophet, and what follows is a chain of disasters. That is, after the child that Bathsheba conceives by David, after he has engineered the murder of her husband, dies in its first weeks of life, David is shattered by this. Um, then David's son Amnon rapes his half-sister Tamar. Uh, uh, Tamar's brother um, uh, um, precedes the, 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 um, uh, uh, to uh, Absalom, precedes to uh, have uh, Amnon killed in, in revenge, and on it goes uh, and, and until the, the the deathbed scene where, or before the deathbed, there's a conspiracy by one of David's sons who usurped the throne, and finally Solomon takes over. So that, in one swift summary, is, is the outline of the story. So we will discuss David, but before that, I want to get to the idea of government that First Samuel has. And I'm going to read for First Samuel chapter 8, verse 11 on. And he said, This will be the practice of the king who will reign over you. Your sons he will take and set for himself in his chariots and in his cavalry, and some will run before his chariots. He will set for himself captains of thousands and captains of fifties to plow his ground and reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the implements of his chariots and your daughters he will take as confectioners and cooks and bakers. And on and on it goes. Your flocks he will tithe and as for you, you will become his slaves. And I like how in your note to this, you say a modern American reader might easily be reminded of the rhetoric of a radical libertarian in vain against the evils of big government. And I take it that way, especially since I have become more anarchist in my political views. I think there's a prescient warning. It's a prescient warning about the dangers of government right at the very start of it. And we see the Book of Judges, which is showing the dangers of anarchy. And I think you start to see the dangers of the government. And a lot of what Samuel is saying does come to pass. And I think it happens. You know, I, I would say that that one of the uh, uh, abiding fascinations of the whole David story is that it is such a sober and penetrating representation of the political realm. Yeah. So to begin with, uh, Samuel's view, which you just quoted, uh, 
comes from his being anchored in the um, in the tribal period, where there is not a unified government. There's not one government over over the whole people of Israel, and where um, the uh, to the extent that that there is any political rule, it's ad hoc leaders who are called judges, who, uh, as they're represented in the Book of Judges, um, uh, a divine spirit descends on them and inhabits them, and um, they um, uh, they rule for a time, 20 years, 40 years, uh, and that's it. No hereditary uh, monarchies or anything like that. Now, uh, this is conceived, and that's the way that um, Samuel as a prophet conceives it, as the direct rule of God. The problem that the Israelites had is that it didn't work very well, that the tribes being uh, not unified were vulnerable to attack by enemies, and, and the people wanted a king, and that's where they lobby Samuel uh, to have a king. But um, Samuel is aware, uh, and of course the, the, there are um, uh, authoritarian monarchies uh, all around in, in Egypt, in Mesopotamia, and so forth. Um, he's aware that, that there could be terrible abuses if you have a king, and that's what, what's uh, laid out in the passage that you, you've uh, just read. Now, what I would add about the um, the political realism of this whole story is that uh, you see in a variety of ways, as David enters the, the political realm, that uh, people play hardball. Uh, they... Um, People kill each other for power, and you have to be ruthless, you have to be dissembling, uh, you have to um, uh, enact, um, uh, carry out certain dubious acts in order to um, uh, maintain, uh, obtain and maintain power, and uh, it, it, as the, the brilliant author of this story sees, it can shape personality and uh, distort personality. Yeah, now that we got that as our kind of foundation, I wonder why is David, the hero of the story, so fascinating to us? What do you think is his central appeal throughout the centuries? Well, uh, now, now, of course, throughout the centuries, um, it leads me to a qualification that David, of course, is um, uh, idealized, and the idealization not in, not in, in Samuel, but later the idealization begins in, in the, the uh, Book of Kings and in Chronicles, yeah, especially in Chronicles. Oh, yeah, um, and later Christian and Jewish uh, traditions saw him as a kind of ideal figure, uh, you know, the, the, the supposed author of Psalms, the sweet singer of Israel, and so forth. But in fact, the um, 
the book of Samuel represents him warts and all. Uh, he uh, he is a murderer by proxy of Uriah Bathsheba's husband. He commits adultery. He may, this is very murky uh, and left ambiguous, he may have something to do with the elimination of a lot of people in, in the house of Saul. So, so that's part of the fascination of the story. That, that, that is, he's a many-sided character. In, in some ways, he's a, a, um, an admirable military hero, um, he uh, is. Um, he, he turns out to be a canny leader uh, of uh, the people of Israel, but he has his dark side. And now, what I would add, and this is unusual in ancient literature, that uh, the story of David is the story of a person evolving in time, and changing under the pressures of politics, changing again late in life uh, under the, the, because of the deterioration uh, of old age. And when you look at the whole picture, you see young David, who's this beautiful young man and heroic, uh, the slayer of Goliath and so forth, and then at the other end of the story, David shivering, old David shivering in his bed, evidently bamboozled by the prophet Nathan and his wife um, Bathsheba. And so that, that large picture where there are so many contradictions makes him, I think, really deeply compelling as a representation of a human life. Fascinating. Albeit, I think that some of the examples of David's goodness, a lot of them may very well be genuine, and the text, I think, re allows us to read it that way, whereas you seem to question them more, and as I was reading your interpretations, I started to question them as well. Maybe he is a duplicitous person who uses it only for personal gain, or, or I think this is a much more interesting answer. He does have genuine intentions, but they get shaped through the power of politics and the state. Sure. And this also brings me to the question of how David contrasts with the previous king, King Saul. King Saul the Benjamite, who is a former shepherd who becomes a king, and then he goes downhill from there. Well, okay. Uh, Saul is spotted by Samuel as being... Uh, uh, from his shoulders upward, taller than anyone in Israel, um, which seems to be a questionable uh, criterion for picking a leader. Although uh, I notice that, that many CEOs in their dark business suits are tall men. So uh, the, the, there is something about physical stature that that people associate with uh, authority. We're never told how tall uh, David is, um, although when uh, the prophet Samuel comes to his father's house, to Jesse's house in Bethlehem, and he reviews 
the seven sons of Jesse, um, uh, God tells him, uh, "Do not look at his appearance, for for uh, a man sees with his eyes, but God sees to the heart." So, outward appearance can be uh, deceiving. Although we, we know that David is physically attractive. Yeah, it says and he has ready. And it says he's ready, he has fine eyes and goodly to look on. And interestingly, it says something similar at the moment Goliath sees him, so we get two different perspectives on David's physical attractiveness. Right, right. Uh, And uh, uh, Goliath, of course, is that way. He says, they've sent this pretty boy to to fight me. What do they think I am? Um, Now, uh, I... In my view, the the key to Saul's character vis-a-vis David is that Saul is repeatedly deprived of knowledge that he seeks. That is, it, it begins really with uh, his first scene where he's been sent to find his father's asses and um, he doesn't have a clue where they are. And uh, he he comes to um, uh, Samuel, who's there called not, not a prophet but a seer, and uh, uh, wants to consult him about uh, the, the whereabouts uh, of uh, his father's asses. And even, even there he needs the guidance and also the... Um, uh, the wherewithal to pay Samuel uh, of his servant in, in order to enact this translate this uh, uh, transaction, and then on in the story, um, he um, uh, he tries to find out things repeatedly and is unable to to find them out, and on the eve of the battle in which he will perish he takes the the he he, he tries uh prophets and he tries divination and uh, all kinds of other means to to find out what will be the the um outcome of the battle the next day and nothing works and so uh, as a stratagem of desperation he goes to a necromancer. He himself ha- has declared that necromancy is a capital crime. And she summons up, this is, uh, I think, the only clear instance uh, of a ghost in, in the Hebrew Bible. She summons up the, the spirit of the dead Samuel, who remains hostile to Saul as he was in his life, and Samuel says to him, tomorrow you and your sons will be with me, obviously meaning that they're going to die. So that's the only kind of knowledge he gets. Now, David, on the other hand, seems to be very shrewd, and uh, so here is a kind of antithesis, and... uh, kind of dopes out things and figures what he has to do. Um, He also, um, when he is in in flight from Saul with uh, a a band of warriors, he has 
the Urim and Tumim, which are divinatory uh, devices that are kind of direct line to God, but which is nothing like what, what uh, Saul has. Now, w- w- as the story goes on, what is interesting is that David begins to lose it on yeah. the knowledge front. This is well after Saul's death. Um, uh, he, um, uh, for even well, the turning point, of course, is the Bathsheba story, and um, even though uh, Bathsheba is. Um, his neighbor, so to speak, after all, he can get a good look at her bathing naked from the palace window. Um, and even though her husband is one of his elite warriors, he doesn't know who she is and he doesn't know who her husband is. Um, and uh, in the latter part of the David story, you re- uh, increasingly get a sense that there are things going on that, that that he doesn't have a take on and and doesn't understand There's, at, in the episode this is one that your listeners may not remember um, the um, uh, Joab his cunning commander uh, sets up a woman from the town of Tekoa to come to David yeah. to uh, uh, give him a kind of fake story about, uh, about uh, her son. A kind uh, of fake and, news. Uh, 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 and the, the, the purpose of the story is to get David to realize that he should not continue the banishment of Absalom. This t- t- turns out to be a terrible idea because when he uh, when Absalom comes back, he. Uh, eventually usurps the throne, uh, and David has to flee to Transjordan. But um, the the woman says a couple of times as she's addressing David as king, she says, my king is like a messenger of the Lord, knowing good and evil, or knowing all that is in the land. And that becomes ironic, because you, you realize that, that he precisely has ceased to know. So, so th- this antithesis which then swivels to a kind of similarity between David and Saul on the question of knowledge is one of the interesting ways in which the the, the, the characters are joined and contrasted. Yeah, which brings me to this idea I have that just as the judges had their problems with people doing what is right in their own eyes, I think the monarchy still has its problems where Saul and David are in some crucial ways no different from each other, even though Saul mm-hmm. is like the bad king and David is anointed of God. He is the poet who is the Messiah. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I agree. <laughs> which brings me to some of David's ambiguities. One of the stories I noted, and this is for my listeners who may not have remembered this, this is when David decides to become a Philistine mercenary and he kills a bunch of people, including women and children. He kills them so they won't talk. Right. And this is actually for the enemies of Israel. He's doing this, but he's presenting this as, I'm doing this to my own people to not get hurt by the Philistines. Yeah, the the, the, the whole business of David as a vassal to uh, uh, Agag, the Philistine king, uh, is... Uh, 
uh, one of the points where he does seem to be morally ambiguous. Now, now, one thing I have to say, that that is, we, of course, are absolutely horrified by genocide. I suspect, I, I say this grudgingly, but I suspect that people in the ancient Near East were far less horrified. And even in ancient uh, that, Greece. That is, it seems to have been at least an intermittent practice in wars in, in the, the Middle East. So it, it, it's quite possible that the ancient Israelite audience was not disturbed by the fact that, that, that um, David and his raiding sorties uh, massacred whole populations of Amalekites, and the Amalekites, of course, are, are the um, uh, proverbial arch enemies uh, of Israel. But nevertheless, he, 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 there, there are several things, several aspects in of his sojourn near Philistine territory that 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 make him look questionable. Uh, uh, the, the, there is what you put your finger on uh, the the uh, the slaughter of populations. Then, of course, the, the, there is the very fact that, that he is, uh, however ambiguously, serving as a vassal to one of um, Israel's prime enemies, the Philistines. The, the, the Philistines. And then there is that scene which I find quite remarkable when he comes to the walls of, I think it's the Philistine city of Gath, and the king comes out with a contingent of warriors, and they more or less surround David, and then one of the king's courtiers says, isn't this David about whom the Israelite women sang, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his tens of thousands? And that, of course, sounds quite ominous. That, that, that is, if he's uh, struck down tens of thousands uh, of Philistines, this is the, the great moment of payback. And David does something to survive. In fact, he's apparently uh, uh, prepared to do anything to survive. So he plays the madman. Yeah. And he rolls around on, on the, the ground and drools over his beard, at which point uh, the, uh, uh, the uh, Philistine king says, uh, do, uh, uh, do I lack um, madman that that I need this one to uh, play the madman for me. <laughs> it's funny. It sounds almost like colloquial modern uh, language in the Hebrew, and um, a, a, and so he he lets David go. And, and this is say quite if if you think of the the moment in the Odyssey when um, uh, when Athena disguises. Um, um, Odysseus as as a wretched beggar when he ter- returns to Ithaca, um, 
that is um, a pure disguise, uh, and and we know that that um, uh, that Odysseus is still the noble uh, uh, warrior Odysseus, just having a mask on, whereas with David rolling around in the ground playing the the the, uh, the madman. It's uh, humanly more intense that 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 is this is somebody who is perfectly willing to abase himself in order to survive. Fascinating indeed. Which brings me to some of the more questionable aspects of David, as you have looked into, and. I think you have sometimes entertained the notion that David may have wiped out the house of Saul in some form or another. Of course, the text tries to disprove this and shows examples of David being kind to the house of Saul, being kind to Jonathan, and being kind to the lame beggar, the, to the lame man Mephibosheth. Right, right. And then Baruch Halpern, a Jewish scholar, argues that David did in fact kill the house of Saul. Yeah, I I think that it is left ambiguous throughout the story. Um, the um, David and this is a manifestation of his political shrewdness in the first part of his career uh, when um, his general Joab, who is a, a very bloody-minded, ruthless character, murders um, Abner, with whom David has just concluded a, a peace agreement. Um, David takes extravagant uh, steps to, to disavow any connection with this killing. Uh, he he uh, in what uh, he makes this memorable statement that that um, uh, I am uh, gentle, or the, the Hebrew word could also be rendered as soft or tender, a newly uh, anointed king, and the sons of Tsuya, that, that that is uh, Joab, who is the son of Tsuya, and his brother Avishai are too hard for me. So he puts it all uh, on um, on them. And um, and in a way, he curses them. But uh, it, it's, uh, it's Job who, who uh, remains the, the powerful uh, figure. So th- there are a number of disavowals like that a- a- along the way. And um, I think they're probably s- sincere, but when... This a nagging suspicion. Maybe the king protests too much. So that, that, that's one of the intriguing aspects of the story. Fascinating. And I want to get into the idea, since this is the day after Valentine's Day of David and his relations to love, sex, and women, because we see plenty of instances where other people love David. We have Saul loving David at first, then Jonathan loving David as his own soul, then Michal loving David. This is the first recorded instance of a woman loving a man in the Bible. And then you have Abigail loving David. And then you don't see any indications of whether Bathsheba loves David or not, but they seem to have some closeness. But we don't see David's reactions 
No, we don't. Uh, so so the, the, that is a very um, consistent pattern. That, that is, David is repeatedly the object of the verb to love, but uh, he's really never the subject. And and the the only time that that he expresses a sentiment of love is in his elegy for Saul and David. You know the the famous uh, yes in Second Samuel in chapter James one version, how have the mighty fallen, uh, in which he says. Um, that, that um, our love was greater th- than the love of women, which, by, by the way, w- uh, some people have seized on uh, as an indication of um, some kind of homosexual or at least homoerotic uh, bond between David and Jonathan. But I, I think that that's wrong. That, that is what we have to keep in mind is that this is a warrior culture, and uh, the the, um, the most intense relationship is not between a man and a woman, but be, be, between comrades in arms. Um, that is, the, the, the same thing uh, obtains uh, in the world of the Iliad, which has a lot of con- connections. Uh, re- re- remember that the uh, Eastern Mediterranean, the, there were cultural connections and, uh, and uh, influences, but, but also just uh, uh, analogies among these different cultures. So um, uh, in, in the Iliad, you remember that, that Achilles is utterly shattered and and then infuriated by the uh, when Hector kills his comrade in arms, uh, uh, Patroclus. And uh, for years, I assumed because you know the Greeks and uh, and uh, homosexuality that that uh, that they were they were uh, gay lovers, but um, a. Uh, a colleague of mine here at Berkeley who w- was w- one of the uh, leading authorities on Greek literature of his age assured me that, that in the um, Homeric age, which corresponds much more to the biblical age uh, of the book of Samuel, uh, as against the later um, uh, uh, the the the, uh, the the later Greek phase where, where homosexuality is well attested, that what's uh, really being represented is the bond between uh, war, uh, warriors, the bond between comrades uh, at arms. So, so that's what you, that's the the one limited exception where, where David expresses love, but. Um, of course, it's an elegy, uh, and uh, he there there are no representations in the story of his saying to Jonathan uh, that that uh, uh, I feel great love for you. Uh, so that's uh, still a, a, another aspect of the representation of David that gives us pause. Now, just to, to go on for a moment to, to pick up the other part of your question, he has the, these uh, 
links with women, but they seem to be um, either a matter of pure sexual desire, which is surely the case with Bathsheba, or of uh, women who were instrumental to his purposes. And uh, the story of Michal is very instructive in this regard. That is, David wants her because, remember, this is at the point when he's been clandestinely anointed, but he is, but Saul is still king, because David wants her because if he marries into the house of Saul, he will um, uh, bolster his claim to the throne at some point. Uh, and uh, then he he has to flee because Saul is trying tries to kill him. And Saul, on uh, dubious uh, legal grounds, uh, marries her off because she's already married to David. He marries her off to uh, a, another man, to a man named Paltiel, son of Laish. And uh, when um, uh, when uh, when David um, uh, uh, comes to his agreement w- with Abner, uh, he stipulates that um, that um, Michal, the daughter of Saul, be sent back to him. And there doesn't seem to be any uh, uh, emotional motivation for this. The, the, the motivation is that he wants the king's daughter to figure in his harem. And the, there's no love lost between them when, when he brings the ark up to Jerusalem. The, the, there is the, the, this horrendous emotional explosion be, be, between them, and she berates him and he berates her. I'd like to read a bit of that for our audience, actually. Sure, go ahead. This is from Second Samuel 6, verse 20. And Michal, daughter of Saul, came out to meet David, and she said, How honored today is the king of Israel, who has exposed himself today to the eyes of his servants, slave girls, as some scurrilous fellow would expose himself. And David said to Michal, Before the Lord, who chose me instead of your father and instead of all his house to appoint me prince over the Lord's people, over Israel, I will play before the Lord, and I will be dishonored still more than this, and will be debased in my own eyes. But with the slave girls about whom you spoke, with them let me be honored. And Michal, daughter of Saul, had no child till her dying day. Because both yeah, are pretty hostile it, it, to each other. It's pretty breathtaking. <laughs> I mean, they're very hostile to each and, other here. Yeah, and uh, of course, um, uh, there are all kinds of elements in, in her remark, and then the wonderful ambiguity of that last sentence about her being childless. The, 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 that is, um, she... Well, we know she's been married to a man who was utterly devoted to her, because all we know about Palti, the son of Laish, is that he accompanies her on the way back to David. He's being ta- she's being taken away from him, and 
he goes weeping all the way until a particular place. I think it's Bahurim, and then Abner says, "Go back," and you don't mess with with, with a warrior like uh, Abner, and he goes back. So she knew a man's true devotion, and uh, meanwhile she hasn't seen David in years. He, he has acquired all these other wives, like Abigail, and uh, uh, she. Uh, uh, she assumes quite rightly that the, the the only reason why he wants her back is to uh, reinforce his claims to the throne, and um, and then the, the, there's the matter of his exposing himself. That, that is, he's been cavorting and dancing around as the the ark is brought up to to Jerusalem, and presumably. He's wearing a short tunic, and I don't think that they wore underwear in ancient Israel. So in doing these cartwheels or whatever he's, he's doing, Dancing when before she the Lord. expose himself, she means sexually expose, him, expose himself to, uh, to mere slave girls. And, uh, you know, she has a, a sense of her own status. And, and so the, then he tells her, well... Uh, uh, you you consider this um, a disgrace. I consider it, uh, if I feel like it, an honor. And then the narrator pops in at the end of the, the, this explosive dialogue and, and says, and Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no child to her dying day. And we don't know what the... the, the is it punishment from God? Maybe because she she uh, vilified the king of Israel, but but then God doesn't seem to intervene that much in in, in this story. Is it because David uh, refuses to have uh, sex with her after this moment um, of alienation? Good chance that that's the explanation, yeah. but uh, again, uh, we don't know for sure. And I would emphasize that lingering uh, ambiguities, multiple possibilities of explanation, are one of the things that make biblical narrative so great. Yeah, I mean, which brings me to several other things before I want to get to your work on the Hebrew Bible and when it will be out. And one of the famous uh, words, you were saying something? Yeah, go ahead. One of the verses in Second Samuel, in 12 verse 31, this is when David has conquered the Ammonites. In the King James Version, it says, And he brought forth the people that were therein, and put them under saws, and under harrows of iron, and under axes of iron, and made them pass through the brick kiln. In First Chronicles 20 verse 3, in the King James again, And he brought out the people that were in it, and cut them with saws, and with harrows of iron, and with axes. A lot of ancient versions, and translations, and commentaries saw that David basically tormented these Ammonites brutally, and I tend to take this interpretation. Mm -hmm. But your translation has David using them as corvée labor, forced labor, to tear down or build up their city, depending on how you read it. What do you think? Do you think both pro both are probable? Yeah, I, I, look, I, I should say something uh, about um, construing the meanings uh, of certain biblical 
phrases or, or individual words that we will never have absolute certainty about some of them, especially if it's an idiom or a particular term that occurs in one place only. Um, my take on uh, the, the, this phrase here is, is that it, it refers to forced labor, which is one thing that subjugated populations were, were often uh um, compelled to do, uh, but I, I would not exclude the the, the King James uh, reading. I, I mean, what I have to say is um, the, there is a an intellectual discipline that we call philology that that is uh, focused on older texts. Uh, it, it's been abundantly deployed on. Greek literature and Latin literature and on the Bible. Um, and um, as a translator, I have found that, that um, philology uh, is um, often exciting work. That, that is, it's kind of a, a detective work where, where you, you try to pick up all the clues of context, the... the, the uh, uh, what the etymology, possible etymology of a term could tell you, and uh, and you f- try to figure out what it really means. And I think in some instances uh, I've figured out things that people have not figured out before. But uh, here's the, 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 the big but. There are definitely instances in which all you can do is make an educated guess, and somebody else's guess might be better than yours. And if I were a translator, I might make a translation similar to yours, but in the King James rendering, and would make a note that either David torturing them or David enslaving them is possible from the Hebrew text. Right. And of course, there's more I'd like to discuss, but I might have to alight a few things, and I want to go straight to David's last words to Solomon, which has a kind of godfather-like poignance to it. I just... Oh, yes, I think it does. I want to read it out, and I want to exclude some of the longer parts of it. I'll read it for my audience. I'll include the ones where he talks about the Lord God following him. Okay. From 1 Kings chapter 2, this is what David says to Solomon before he dies. I am going on the way of all the earth, and you must be strong and be a man, and keep what the Lord your God enjoins to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, and his dictates, and his admonitions. And it goes a little on here. And you, and what's more, you yourself know what Joab son of Zeruiah did to me, what he did to the two commanders of the armies of Israel, Abner son of Ner and Amasa son of Jether. He killed them and shed the blood of war in peace, and put the blood of war on his belt that was round his waist, and on his sandals that were on his feet. And you must act in your wisdom, and do not let his grey head go down in peace to Sheol. And with the sons of Barzillai, the Gileadite, keep faith, and let them be among those who eat at your table. For did they not draw near me when I fled from Absalom your brother? And look, with you is Shimei, son of Gerard, the Benjaminite from Bahurim, and he cursed me with the scathing curse on the day I went to Mahanaim. And he came down to meet me at the Jordan, and I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death by the sword. And now, do not hold him guiltless, for you are a wise man, and you will know what you shall do to him, and bring his grey head down in blood to Sheol, or Bet Dam Sheol in Hebrew. And David lay with his fathers, 
and he was buried in the city of David. I just have a kind of visceral thrill reading this, not out of a sadistic thrill, but it's full of coiled energy behind it. Oh, yes, that's a good phrase for it. Well, now, uh, let me, uh, for your listeners, uh, add a little comment uh, uh, about uh, the section of the speech that, that you, you skipped. Feel free. Um, and not that, that I object to you skipping it. Um, the, the, the history of this text is that I believe that it was written early in the, the, the period of the Davidic monarchy, uh, probably not in, in David's lifetime, but maybe a generation or two afterwards. Uh, and it was written by one of the great writers uh, of Western literature, um, who had, uh, as I've said before, a very unblinking view of the political realm and of human nature. But then... It was edited um, probably, uh, well, uh, well, certainly uh, two or three centuries later. It would have been edited, my guess is, in the 6th century BCE, maybe in the Babylonian exile. And the editors would have been what scholars call part of the Deuteronomistic school, that is, the the writers that produced the book of Deuteronomy. And they had a a rather more pious and theological view of the world and of Israelite history than did the original author of the David story. So there are moments when the Deuteronomistic, I know that's a mouthful, but the Deuteronomistic uh, editor uh, intervenes uh, um, in order to promote his own viewpoint. And what what happens here uh, in David's deathbed speech is... uh, he gives Solomon the, the, these instructions to, to take care of his enemies. And when he says, you're a wise man, uh, and uh, note the, the interesting ambiguity of wisdom here, that, that is, Solomon is legendary for his wisdom, for uh, the... Uh, the um, uh, the judgment of Solomon seen in First uh, Kings, uh, and for being for having uh, the the book of Proverbs uh, attributed to him. Um, but the wisdom that, that that David is talking about, you're a wise man, means you're a shrewd, canny man, and you'll know how to get rid of these guys. Well, the Deuteronomistic editor squirmed with this. He couldn't get rid of it. He couldn't just delete it because it it was part of the inherited text which he accepted as authoritative. So what he did was that he introduced several lines of his own language in the middle of David's speech 
um, uh, in which David tells Solomon, um, you must um, uh, uh, serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your might and walk in his ways and fulfill his commandments and on and on like that. Very, very pious, very didactic in a way that, that David in the core of the story never speaks. And in fact, this these lines or a pastiche of recurring verbal formulas in the book of Deuteronomy. So you you see an almost amusing tension between the editor's attempt at an intervention and what David is recorded as saying in the original story. Fascinating indeed. And in reading this last speech, I noticed that he doesn't mention Joab's killing of Absalom. And in your note here, he doesn't mention Absalom because this killing served the purposes of the state of Israel, but it was surely the one act he could not forgive. Yeah. Thank you for your time. Okay, it was good talking with you, uh, and uh, thank you for inviting me. Like what you hear? Here's how you can let us know. Give us a call at 516-299-2626 or email us at info at wcwp.org. Like us at facebook.com slash mywcwp and leave a comment or tweet us at mywcwp. We welcome all kinds of feedback. To directly support the podcast you just enjoyed, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you'd like to give back, visit wcwp.org and click the support tab. Thanks for listening from your friends at WCWP.